1: Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, covering Open the Southern Gate from Burlington, North Carolina on April 1st, 2011. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling network RSS feed or on our own Open the Voice Gate dedicated RSS feed on every podcast platform application applicable. If you want to donate to the show, we would greatly appreciate it. Go to RedCircle.com or the link in the show notes, and you can give a one-time or reoccurring donation. You can find us on Twitter, at Open OpenVoiceGate. I am one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. And join us always by my co-host, Case Lowe. And Case, how do you feel about now that we're going down south for DGUSA?
2: I'm approaching Mike Spears' territory uh, at a rapid descent judging from some of the choice architecture on these on this venue's wall, I would say I don't feel totally safe at the Mid-Atlantic Sportatorium. I don't know if you noticed the same things I did about this venue. Yeah. <laughs> It would be one Confederate flag hanging in the corner that I could not take my eyes off of the entire show. Every time they cut to it, it is the only thing I could focus on. But we are going down south. We are heading to the Spears' territory. Spears' territory. It is. It is North Carolina. It is open the southern gate. And it is WrestleMania weekend 2011, which I am very very excited to talk about this triple shot that DG USA had.
1: Yes, yeah, just so for like a frame of reference. I know where that venue was, and we could talk more about it because I have my opinions when we get into the show itself. Yeah, that part of North Carolina is close to where I uh, went to undergrad, and, you know, it, it, it's something where, like, I'm glad we live in 2020, where people are having the necessary uh just reckoning over this, the Confederate battle flag and how just fucking racist it is, for lack of a better word. It's my French, but yeah, no, that does not surprise me when I saw that. I was like, oh, yeah, that's terrible, so... Yeah,
2: It's one of those things that, like, even before I knew the meaning behind the flag, I, I've always had a bit of a bias towards the South. So I was like, oh, that's a Southern thing. It's dumb. But I do think about it. There's certainly not beacons of hope in this dull world, but Ring of Honor and Sinclair Broadcasting and the Briscoe Brothers like a few years ago, they released a compilation where the cover is just the Briscoes with like a Confederate flag background behind them. That's like 2014. Like, that is not that long ago. Right. And again, I mean, it's, you know, we're changing. It's for the better. I'm not going to, I'm not going to gatekeep any sort of progression. When you can get on board, you can get on board. But yeah, it was very distracting this entire show. Whenever they would cut to the corner cam, it's like, oh my God, there's a Confederate flag in the background. Okay.
1: All right. Let's focus on the wrestling. Yeah, no, it was something that was out of place then, I would say, and even more out of place nowadays. Uh, how do you want to start off with show notes? I do have one thing coming out of New York City before we want to talk about uh, the rest of February and March and Dragon Gate and across the world. Oh, please give me your New York City note. All right, so this comes from the uh, the February 14th, the Valentine's edition of the Observer from 2011. And this is about the i pay-per-view. We've talked about the rise of iPay-Per-View over the series, and this was the last weekend, this being the United Weekend, of them using iPay-Per-View on the GoFight Live platform, and this is what Dave Meltzer said. The two iPay-Per-View shows, which were, for the listeners, that was the New York City show from BB Kings and the Philadelphia show from the 2300 Arena. The two iPay-Per-View shows did virtually identical numbers. They did a few hundred, maybe 450 or 500, on iPay-Per-View for... January 28th in New York and January 29th in Philadelphia. The two shows were only 2 buys apart, so one would guess it was the same 450 to 500 people each night. The number was down 30% from the first iPay review, but these shows were also announced just days ahead, so there's little promotion, plus doing two in one weekend kind of diluted each. So, we've now they've now have pretty much focused onto the iPay reviews now, and we've seen Just like attendance, that initial interest, at least for January, that was a pretty stark drop. I think they were doing about 700 for the first ones. And the first one was in Boston, right? It was the first one in Boston. Yes. We're already starting to see that the one tail of the the promotion, at least through the first 17 shows, I think it's fair to say, my finances and money was never on DGUSA's side.
2: No, it's just such a a stark decline in business and uh, part of what is has to me about this project in particular is you know the narrative has been after you know the first three or four even if you want to extend it to wrestlemania weekend the first 60 usa shows not only does business go down but quality goes down and i think with the exception of you know, the end of 2010, that Northeast double shot where those shows weren't bad, but they weren't the strongest. And then you had United Finale, the prior show we talked about, which I wasn't crazy about at all outside of one match. But it's not like these shows are bad. In fact, I think both of them are very good. I loved both United New York and United Philly. I think the talent in play right now between Yamato and Tozawa and Pac and Ronin, like there's a lot of exciting things in this promotion, and this is still where... We're two years away from me following the promotion. I was really only actively following it for the last year of its existence. So I can only hypothesize that, or at least hope that in 2011, had I been aware of the promotion, that I would be a huge fan that I would be watching. Because again, these shows are very, very good. And yes, it's easy to say with hindsight, oh, well... It's Johnny Gargano. Why didn't you care? It's Chuck Taylor. How could you not care? I understand they were new stars at the time, but they're guys that I think have acclimated themselves to the promotion and the house style incredibly, incredibly well. And I'm just so surprised to see the continual dip in business because yes, they broke into the New York city market, but you know, that only lasts for so long because that building was so expensive to run. And it essentially came down as Gabe has said, people weren't buying enough food and drinks at the BB King show. So they had to stop running there, but it just seems like everywhere they go, things are getting worse and worse and worse. And you even compare it to WrestleMania weekend, 2010, which, as we talked about then, we thought the crowds were kind of sparse for that weekend. it wasn't a huge turnout. But look at the building they were running, the Celebrity Theater in Phoenix. And a year later, they're running the Mid-Atlantic Sportatorium, which is not a shout on that building. I actually think the, the venue has some positives to it. But just optically, it is such a, a stark change in Trangate USA that if you're only watching the promotion from afar— it looks like things, it literally looks like things have gotten so much worse, even if the in-ring product isn't representing that.
1: Yeah, and I we, we've talked about it, especially with the Chicago and Milwaukee shows, about how bad, in some cases, the production got. And if you're like a, a person that's looking in from the outside, although the ring work and, I would say, the talent development is worth watching, production-wise, like... This is 2011 we're talking about. I think WWE went to HD in 2010. I want to say like... like the Either fi- 2009 or
2: 2010. Right,
1: so it's still recent. Like, but, uh, that, That's fine for my point I was going to make. It's about... You have these products out there that... In a real lull in wrestling. That was... Had proper production. That looked decent. I mean, TNA, I believe, was soon to go to HD. And of course, Ring of Honor was on HDNet. And then you have this promotion like if you compare them like side by side to an outside observer you're not going to pick dg usa and i feel like that's something that as like the further we get into this you kind of see like the same production it's something i keep on going back to is it's something that i don't necessarily think like production wise it was made to succeed in that regard if that makes sense
2: no, I mean it's something that God, I mean you and I and and Rich Cre voices of wrestling, I mean especially during the flow Slam days, we'd spent so much time talking about, you know, if you put the three of us in that building with with my limited production background and your extensive and Rich's extensive extensive production background, like we could make these shows look really good and it's just something that even when Gabe had the financial opportunity, to make his shows look major league, he opted for lasers instead, and then seemed to cut corners in every single other aspect of the uh, of the presentation. And we're in 2011, we've talked about on pretty much every episode how, you know, they're not hitting their attendance goals, eye-per-views are down, this weekend is their last televised pay-per-view, like, it's, you know, it's understandable to think that there's not a ton of cash flow coming in, but this is 2011, and YouTube has been around, and digital marketing is a thing at this point, and it was just something that they were never able to capitalize on i mean gabe doesn't go to hd until the beginning of 2014 so we get the last four dragon gate usa shows in hd but there's approximately i believe one dragon gate talent on those shows combined i believe it's just yosuke's Santa maria so uh, gabe is is dealt a bad hand yes i mean you know it, it's calmed down a little bit but we'll talk about it in, the, in future episodes of the talent turnover that comes out of this weekend Obviously, the first six months of the promotion are all Gabe building up these American stars and then the American stars leaving. I understand that he was dealt some bad hands, but he's just not making it any better on himself.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, it, I think it's, that's like an important point to come back to. Like, there were all these environmental factors, but there are things that, I mean, hey, we should, we should talk to Krejci and say, hey, how about we, we put ourselves out there, you pay us a block amount of your money and we'll make your shows not look like shit. You'd be surprised what you can do with, With good scrims and actual lighting things while making things sound great, you know? Mike,
2: I'm a really good employee. I take direction really well. If you and Rich (laughs) tell me how to make a professional wrestling venue look nice, it is going to look damn good by the time I'm done. I just need the direction.
1: I mean, here we go. This is what we're doing here. We're playing out future businesses here as we're watching (laughs) one business slowly (laughs) <laughs> slowly slide into irrelevancy if
2: we don't learn from history we're doomed to repeat it we are learning from the cardinal sins of Gate usa in order to start our own wrestling promotion that is the point of this podcast
1: and i will say this for our wrap-up there is a new cardinal sin diet for the show that we will talk about as we get into it so that was it from at least notes coming out of united week in case you want to take us around the world
2: Yes, uh, indeed. We are going to go to the Dranget USA Newswire for our first bit of timeline stuff, and then we will go abroad to Japan to cover... Everything that happened between uh, the end of February and the beginning of April, because it is a lot in a one month span. But we do have to go back to December 10th, 2010, when Gabe announces that Dragon USA is pleased to announce that we are heading to North Carolina on uh, Friday night, April 1st at the Mid-Atlantic Sportatorium. You will see DG USA live. We look forward to carrying on the tradition of great pro wrestling by presenting something completely new. In North Carolina, and then after the United Weekend, January 31st, we get uh, the major players of the weekend, the first talent that is announced, and it is the Open, the Freedom Gate champion Yamato. It is the Open, the United Gate uh, champions Masato Yoshino and Pac. It is Shima and Naruki Doi of Blood Warriors, Ronin of Chuck Taylor, Johnny Gargano, and Rich Swan, Akira Tozawa, and a man who is not on this show but is a featured player on the Atlanta shows, Stalker Chikawa makes his Gate USA debut from there we go to february 2nd when gabe announces the first ever stable shootout is coming to burlington north carolina on april 1st the stable shootout will pit blood warriors of shima naruki doi and ricochet versus ronan of chuck taylor johnny gargano and rich swan each team will get to put the other team through a series of challenge matches and the three matches are this now mike I will read you what Gabe typed verbatim Mm -hmm. and then we can analyze it from here. Okay.
1: All right. Let's number
2: one. Yes. Number one, a one-on-one battle between one member of each stable. Simple enough. Sure. Number. Yes. Number two, a dream partner tag team match, but you must pick someone from outside your stable. I understand that. Yeah. Not complicated there. Number three, this is actually two matches each stable will get to book a member of the opposing team against any available opponents. Mike, I watched this show and then did these notes and I did not know what <laughs> game that until I actually looked back at the card. Number three, this is actually two matches. Why not just say it's a four match series that game? Why would you do this?
1: i mean this is like gabe at like his peak gabe he was feeling himself with this idea like can't you see him getting into mailchimp or whatever he used for that time going like all right i have to tell him this awesome idea it's a stable shootout the first one one one-on-one all right gabe we're with you there number two dream partners be able to pick from out outside your stable okay that's gonna be interesting there like like you can see like a What was a first-time matchup? All right, let's go with this. Number three. This is actually two matches, and it's a uh, you-select-opponent match. What the fuck, Gabe support? It's just, it's the
2: most roundabout way to get to such a simple concept where he says, the three matches are, and then... Follows that up after two matches with, well, there's actually two matches. Oh, Gabe, God bless you. But those matches of the stable shootout, they turned out to be the matches that we'll talk about in just a little bit. The dream partner tag match of Pac and Ricochet versus Chuck Taylor and Akira Tozawa. The Blood Warriors versus Ronan one-on-one match. Shima versus Johnny Gargano in a rematch from the first anniversary show. Uh, the partner, or the opponent rather, that Ronan picked for Naruki Doi. It is Naruki Doi versus John Moxley. And the Blood Warriors pick for Rich Swan is Sammy Callahan versus Rich Swan, So that's what we have to look forward to. But again, we've got a little bit more news before we get to that, including an announcement on February 14th, that Chicago's untouchable show from September 25th, 2010 is now available on DVD for immediate shipping. And then February 16th, it is announced that the following night show way of the Ronin is also now shipping for DVD. So, Mike, that is a five-month gap between DVD purchases, or or between the the show and the release of the DVD, rather. Is that normal for the time period? Because this already seems like they are
1: drastically falling behind on DVDs. Well, yes and no. I mean, SmartMark Video was the major independent wrestling provider, as they were basically up until when uh, when IWTV really took over and then people going – do individual stuff on Fight TV, and they would be able to do a pretty quick turnaround because they would burn on DVDRs which for the younger, the younger listeners here, those are the DVDs that have the purple and blue background. They're the ones that are cheap and they're the ones that always degrade fastest because they're not—they're made basically to be printed in your computer. The thing was, PWG always had a huge delay, but they also always did like master-produced DVDs, which are a lot like the DVDs you'll see in store where they have the silver and goldish background because they record on a different format. And that's what DG USA did as well. Like case I'm certain that whenever you look through your DG USA DVDs, you see like, okay, this actually looks like it's a pretty, like professionally done thing. Smartmark basically was printing onto DVD VRs and then putting it through like a DVD label printer. So that, that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah. Cause I mean, that, that's,
2: that's the thing. That. It's so unfortunate that the DGUSA USA DVDs took so long to get because they always looked very, very good.
1: So, so there is that there is also we talked earlier about how they had i forget which episode i think this was in the wrap-up 20th episode where we talked about how they're eliminating the bonus dvd and they're eliminating yes. the production cost there like the idea there was that i was supposed to like expedite things i think but also like cut down costs because you don't have like the thin because they always use the thin cases dg did versus like the standard dvd cases the thin ones and it's something where like i could tell like why they're trying to do this and like this also, at least for that Chicago show, that was a pay-per-view. So there's probably some level of exclusivity there from, okay, you have so long from after this is done airing. This was really before VOD happened on cable systems. Some cable systems had VOD, but not necessarily for wrestling. But still, like, the Milwaukee show is just taped for DVD. You could have, like, had that thing out in months unless you were, like, so, like, it can't come out until after Chicago, and we can't release Chicago for X amount of period of time. So, those are my two guesses about this. I know for certain the DVD mastering process was is a more intensive and more expensive deal versus DVD VRs. But there also might be a pay-per-view component that had them do that as well. But this will be something we'll be talking about for the remainder of the series because, as Kay said, we're coming up on the end of their deal with G-Funk and Terrestrial pay-per-view.
2: Yeah, and I I, I could be wrong, but off the top of my head, I believe there are at USA shows that were just never released on DVD because at one point they fell so far behind. And then Gabe's logic when he rebooted Evolve in 2014 was forget all the shows we missed. We're starting with DVD production on these shows now. <laughs> and just uh, there's an entire year of shows, I think. And I, again, we'll talk about when we get to it, but I think the WrestleMania Week in 2013 shows and Mercury Rising, which had the Shingo Tozawa match where everybody watched from the corner because they were afraid they were going to miss WrestleMania. Um, I think that's the last DGUSA show on DVD. I don't believe the last eight shows actually made it to press. I think they just exist digitally, which is hard to believe. But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. We do have... An update on Chikara, as on February 21st, Gabe announces Seki Sekigun has disbanded, the doors open for the unit to return down the road, the relationship with Chikara and DGUSA remains strong. Mike Quackenbush sent us this statement, and this is, I will not do a Mike Quackenbush impression, but just have in mind his apology video as I read this quote. It is with a heavy heart that I must take a leave of absence from Dragon Gate USA. As half of the Chikara Tag Team Champions with Jigsaw, my focus and concentration must go in that direction. My changing focus, however, does not indicate the end of a partnership between Dragon Gate and Chikara, simply a new phase of its evolution. So, Mike Quackenbush, dominating the PR game since 2011. Mike, do you have any sad feelings on Chikara going away? Well,
1: I'm sad because I don't think that a lot of the Chakara people were put into opportunities that they could succeed at, and we've seen post this point of people who have been Chakara people who have stopped by, who have ended up, you know, doing great things after DGUSA, and after Chakara, and, like, that's the frustrating thing, I feel like. Like, we, pretty much the story of the first ten episodes of this podcast were, wow, Quack, not looking so good in 2020. Low did we know that other things would make him not look so good in 2020, but like jigsaw we're like why is jigsaw not oh not like doing more of jigsaw not doing more of jigsaw so that's like the thing i come back to is i don't know if like the chakar i think the chakar people were basically expected to kind of be like what ronin become but they just either didn't mesh or they weren't set up to succeed or just various reasons there so i don't i'm not going to miss having a bad mike quackenbush promo and mike <laughs> quackenbush getting eating alive in the style that he professes he's great at but then someone who actually like trained in the cell, not just on seminars, came and ate his lunch. So I feel bad. I, w- I wish we had more Jigsaw. Like, that's my big yes, takeaway. Uh, the
2: Jigsaw pops up here and there. So it's the end of any Jigsaw push is now. But Jigsaw at least has some more appearances throughout the promotion. He does not appear, however... In the Breakout Challenge, which will happen on this Open the Southern Gate show, February 28th, it is announced that DGUSA will present the Breakout Challenge on April 1st at Burlington, North Carolina. DGUSA will give someone a chance to break out from the pack. It will be eight wrestlers and two four-way freestyle matches. The winners will then collide later on in the card in a singles match to determine who will break out. And both freestyles have been signed. And it is Eric Cannon, AR Fox, Facade, and Shima Zion and the first one and Jimmy Rave, John Davis, Kyle Matthews, and Sugar Dunkerton in the second. So, Mike, that is all of the relevant news pertaining directly to open the Southern Gate, but to, I guess, paint a picture for not only the wrestling landscape, but literally what with, with what we're about to talk about, the world landscape at the time, we have to shift to Japan, March 1st, 2011, Cork Hall, Dragon Gate, we have the debut of Ronin in Japan on a card that I will read you real quick. Chuck Taylor, Rich Swann, Johnny Gargano win the opening match against Shima, Naruki, Doi, and Aoki Tanazaki. Masato Yoshino defeated Super Shisa. Uh, B.B. Hulk and Susumu defeated Don Fuji and Kenichiro Rai and Takamichinoku and Minoru Fujita. We talked on the last show about how that was supposed to be Nozawa Ron Guy, but Nozawa stole a taxi. And thus, Minoru Fujita was put in his spot. Uh, the first singles match between, or I guess it, the first singles match in Drengate between Pac and Ricochet for the Open the Brave Gate title. Pac defended the title there. A loser-revive survival elimination match between Blood Warriors and Kamikaze, in which Kamikaze came out on top. And then an Open the Dream Gate number one contendership match, Masaki Moshizuki defeating Gamma in the main event of a Cork and Hall
1: show. Mike, what are your memories of this show? So... I this is one of the shows from this that I've not rewatched but I remember pretty fondly uh, the Ronin entrance was very kind of like we, we will talk a little bit in a couple minutes more about Ronin's time in Japan but it was like such like a thing at that time like seeing Chuck Taylor, Johnny Gargano and Rich Swan like being brought in I mean, brought into a force I mean beating Shima, Naruki Doi and Naruki Tanazaki is a pretty strong feat for like them so at least you could tell that that was a big thing I remember the Yoshino and Shisa match not being what I was hoping for. I think that that match... That's
2: a shame, because that match looks really fun on paper. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, uh, the Brave Gate match, I mean, they would do better, I would, I believe, but that was a fun match between Pac and Roche. Like, the big match, that like, takeaway, that, like, the best match in the show, and it's a format that Dragon Gate doesn't do very often, was the eight-man tag team loser revives survival elimination match, which we're going to get to a period where we're going to have to explain a lot of different... Elimination matches, case <laughs> just explain what's going on in Japan, and it's just like a cool format. Basically, you as long as you still had one person in the match, you would ha- be able to like get someone back who eliminated, and it kind of made like a really cool dynamic because like they wouldn't leave ringside. Like some of the matches they had them go wait out in the entryway. Some of the places they actually had like a pen for them to stand in, and like this one was like a really fun one. It was like one of the first ones of this, and of course Masaki mochizuki winning the dream or winning the contendership for the Dream Gate title that is I mean that was the whole thing about how Gamma was wrestling and it was originally gonna be like Brody Lee and then it was like I don't care because Gamma didn't want to wrestle there, but Brody Lee wasn't on this tour. So interesting show. Yes. Interesting show. Yeah. To say. I,
2: I have not seen anything from this show other than the Pac Ricochet match because that is one that has always circulated really well, at least I know there's at least a music video of the clipped match on YouTube, but for a while, that match was pretty well out there because it's it's insane. Like, Pac and Ricochet will have better matches in 2011 as the year goes on, but this one, they are just doing moves. Like, it is, it is a bizarre match because even for Pac, who I really... Post-2007, I mean, once he comes to, to Dragon Gate for the first time, he loses any sort of, like, really spotty stuff and becomes just a really solid all-around worker. But this is just Pac and Ricochet doing moves, and it is a ton of fun. But I would like to see that Loser Revives Survival Elimination match. It kind of sounds like traditional dodgeball rules, in kind a sense, where you... Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've seen matches like that before, but I haven't seen that particular one. So I would like to hunt down that show... Uh, and find do it. Do you know what episode of Infinity that is offhand? No, I I do not know off the top of my head. Fair um, enough. Because I, I I looked uh, throughout the dark web this week, could not find this show. But there is footage of the March fourth Osaka Prefectural Gym number two show, uh, which featured. Ah, uh, Ryoseto and Gekihoraguchi defeating Don Fuchi and the future T-Hawk. Super Shisa defeating Yasushi Kanda, Masaki Mochizuki, and Kenichiro Rai defeating Dragon Kid and Gama. Yamato Kagatora, Cyber Kong defeating Ronin of Chuck Taylor, Rich Swann, and Johnny Gargano. That is a really fun match. Yeah. And then another Loser Revives survival elimination match. This one between Blood Warriors and World 1 in which Blood Warriors ends up winning and then after the match Shima challenges World One to put their Triangle Gate titles on the line at the upcoming sumo hall show and World One agrees if they lose, they will disband. So a lot happening on this show, Mike.
1: Yeah, and obviously like the 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 top two matches are the ones that are if you're someone that had, is able to find it, it's worth watching. Like Ronin in Japan, it was like such an interesting thing and it's gonna be such an interesting thing to like look back on because it's a very divergent kind of thing for these three guys and, and like their first exposure to Dragon Gate but I mean again like the eight-man tag team loser revive survival matches so much they're they're really fun because there's a lot of different ways like they do they are over the top rope so I mean, you can't do elimination that way and there's like a lot of like good little moments here and then of course like we're now getting real close to the kick the formal kickoff of Blood Warriors versus Junction 3 so the fact that World One was putting their livelihood at stake at this time, and of course they've been the super faced unit ever since they formed. So like this was like a big thing, and I mean we don't ha- like disband matches. Like usually, Dragon Gate will have one or two a year, but like this one, like and the idea about the uh, r- the World One disband match, I remember being like, a, "Wow, World One is going to disband!" Like at the time, it was like they just got Kineska. The now pack is looking even bigger bb hulk who knows what's going to happen bb hulk now that he dropped the freedom gate could they be playing big things for bb hulk and then of course like pack there it was just like one of those things it's like this was like a-, a thing like that at least for the phantom at the time there were huge stakes going into this span possibility
2: because world one formed what in the summer of 2008
1: yeah yeah because it, it was right at because they formed out of the ashes of new hazard because New Hazard uh, became a Real Hazard as uh, that was the whole thing. The day that the Earth stood still as Shingo Takagi and Cyber Kong turned on BB Hulk. When BB Hulk finally got them to do the BB story dance and came out in costume and they beat the crap out of them. And they were Triangle Gate champions. They had to vacate that. And then Doi Yoshi came to save him.
2: Yeah, I just rewatched that angle. And it is... It is an all-time great pro wrestling angle. I mean, it is up there as an elite tier. Like, oh my God, this is why I like this dumb medium. Uh, Having Hulk and Kong come out and the BB Hulk get up,
1: do the dance only to plant him into the mat. It is a brilliant piece of work. And it's something that we'll be talking about probably one of the other great turns coming up in probably the next three episodes from now. We'll probably be talking about that.
2: Yes, so after the Osaka show, there was a Kobe Sambo Hall show on this tour, but it wasn't super important. But all of this was leading up to Sumo Hall Compilation Gate 2011 on a show that was supposed to feature uh, T Hawk versus Dr. Muscle in a dark match, Tanazaki, Kanda, and Gama versus Chuck Taylor, Rich Swan, Johnny Gargano in the opener, Kagatora and Fujita Jr. Hayato versus Super Shenlong and Kotoka. An open the Brave Gate number one contender match between Doi and Araken. A your man, Mike Taku Iwasa return match. Iwasa and Cyber Kong versus Don Fuji and Super Shisa. A twin gate match between Saito and Horiguchi versus Yamato and Shingo. The aforementioned triangle gate versus unit match with Shima, Ricochet, and Dragon Kid versus BB Hulk, Susumu, and Pac. And the open the Dream Gate match between Masato Yoshino emasaki mochizuki mike this show was supposed to happen on march 20th why did it not happen
1: well on march eleventh, 2011 uh, japan had its greatest natural disaster in modern history when there was a earthquake and a tsunami that really rocked the entire country mostly in the northeast portion of it and also these events led to the fukushima nuclear reactor melting down over a period i think they said that it was upwards of like trillions of dollars of damage for the fukushima uh thing it's just all kind of like w- boiled in together like you had like the earthquake and i do have some notes about the earthquake when we get to more talking about it and how it completely won the worst earthquakes that people have ever felt and then the whole entire tsunami completely wiped out fukushima region to the extent that i mean it still has not to this day really kind of recovered like there still are parts of the, uh, the Tohoku area that have not recovered from it and it's something that ever since then I mean it was 360 million or billion dollars as of that day just under 16,000 deaths and one of the uh, greater tragedies in modern history.
2: Yeah it's something that I certainly remember paying attention to at the time it's just given my age and this was 2011 so I was 12 years old at the time and it's certainly something that I have memories of, and I went back and watched some footage of the disaster today before we started recording. And it it's it was even worse than I remember, quite honestly. I mean, I, some of the videos I saw were just uh, just unbelievably cruel and just terrible. But uh, I I think Dave Meltzer in the March twenty first Observer had a just a good summary of it a week out of kind of everything that happened. Uh, It was a 9.0 magnitude earthquake and with the continued aftershocks, many of which were significant. uh, Then the fear of the radiation link, Dave writes, has threatened life as they know it in parts of the country. While there are those that have noticed some of the U.S. coverage has been overblown, as much of the country in the South and West may have been shaken up by the big earthquake and to a lesser extent the tremors, but were not seriously harmed. Numerous shows were canceled, but it appears nobody within the pro wrestling or MMA community was injured or killed, partially due to luck. Because Japan is earthquake country, its structures are the best equipped in the world to withstand a major earthquake, but this was approximately 30 times more powerful than the last major earthquake in the U.S., the 1989 San Francisco Bay Area earthquake that is remembered for a lot of things, but most notably prematurely ending that year's World Series because of structural damage to cork and hall in tokyo the center of activity for many wrestling boxing and mma groups a number of events have been canceled including a women's boxing show with three world championship matches on march 12th and a men's boxing show on march 14th yeah this was the the thing about the the bay area earthquake there and it being 30 times more powerful than that earthquake is terrifying to think about
1: well and this is one of the things that as dave is someone that's kind of hit and miss in recent years about uh cultural issues and global issues i feel like that this is actually some of Dave's strongest reporting was done during this i mean he was able to interview someone like aaron aguila who was on tour for all japan or he was able to like take these notes we had an interview elsewhere where aaron Aguilas is from southern california and he was like this is he no this is a quote that he said from this but it didn't stop shaking, and the guy next to me was saying we're in the earthquake. Being from California, and by the way, he was in all Japan. They were to- touring that region when this happened. So they were close to what happened, and they were in their tour bus. He said, being from California, with all the earthquakes I've been through, I kind of knew what to expect. But it wouldn't stop, and it kept getting worse and worse. It's hard to believe, but the bus almost tipped over. I can't believe it didn't. That's how violent the shaking had gotten. The thing that was scariest, though, is that the shaking did not stop for four minutes it was 10 times 20 times maybe even 100 times worse than any earthquake i felt back home the fury was unbelievable i was thinking that was it this was the way that god wants me to go this is it i can't believe it i'm going to die in a bus full of wrestlers six thousand miles away from my wife kids and parents you know for the first few years you think you'll stop soon there's nothing to worry about i've been through these before we've been fine then when it doesn't quit and you watch some of the guys get up out of their seats and start freaking out you start saying your prayers, preparing may, maybe to die. So it is something that left a mark on someone like Aaron Aguilar, who was there. And it's something that, I mean, also he talks about that uh, th- not just like Cork and Hall did it, but Sumo Hall canceled everything cause it, because even though they had the preventions there, I mean, there was damage suffered. And I believe Cork and Hall basically for why I don't remember when exactly it got started back up but for a long time Cork and Hall was it it, it was available but then they had to do repairs later because I know that companies were back in Cork and Hall by May but it effectively shut down a lot of wrestling a lot of wrestling and mostly they had to cancel Dragon Gate at least cancel their so at Sumo Hall and they weren't able to announce it until the 16th and I mean they were running in Kobe area and in Osaka so it wasn't really affecting them there but it's something that at least with dragon gate, if you're watching these shows along with us, you'll notice that most of the Japanese wrestlers have a uh, prey for Japan and various like different armbands and like things. This dragon gate did make like a big effort of fundraising. I don't think any of dragon gates wrestlers at the time were from Awate and Tohoku, but it was something that like, I mean, even for dragon gate, which is known as the Western Japan uh, wrestling company still like deeply like felt. It and I remember, like, stuff with, like, Akira Tozawa. When he, were like, returned, he, like, had a part of, like, the pray, he adapted the Pray for Japan stuff, kind of, like, to, like, pray for me, because I know that it was something that shook him up really well, far, really well. I mean, this is a guy who was on excursion in America, and you have to basically hope to get in contact with people, and, like, one of the big people that kind of became a figure in this was Jinsei Sensaki, because for a while people were worried about him, because he's kind of, like, the big boss of that area, and he owned, like, ramen restaurants, and he was also involved in sendai girls and he basically got to a point where he immediately was like i need to help and he was living in his car basically because he was driving to pick up his ingredients from his for his ramen restaurant and then providing ramen for people and it was like it's just easier for me to sleep in my car so it, it's something that i think that it, it's still a very poignant thing if you're someone who subscribes on twitter to or social media to any like Japanese wrestler, Japanese fans, and trying to keep up with like Peresu, you will see often on 311 a lot of remembrances of it, and it's something that's just in. I, I, it's a, it's hard to put in words like talking to, like people because I mean like Ronan was on tour in Japan when this happened.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So so just... Ronan's there, and any time they are asked about that Dragon tour because it's the only time Taylor goes to Japan, Gargano.
1: Oh, Ronan, I, think... I mean, Taylor does, but just not for, he was in Japan before for Osaka Pro and Big Japan, yes, but this is his that's only right. Dragon Gate.
2: Yeah, and then does New Japan after the fact, but I think Gar- Gargano has at least one more tour, I think it's just one, and then Swan becomes a regular pretty soon after, but anytime they talk about it, they all talked about in their Kevin Steen show interviews of the, just the the panic that, that came over them and and everybody they were surrounded by. I did not know until I was reading the observer that other Americans were in Japan as well, because pro wrestling Noah had Trevor Murdoch, Bill breaker and Bobby fish on tour as well. And they were stuck at the Narita airport for 29 hours, uh, which sounds hellacious, but I, I had no prior knowledge of those guys being in Japan as well. So it's, you know what? I it's something that affected the globe. When we had Jay on the podcast a few months ago, he talked about you know he helped work uh, the concessions uh, for Dragon Gate at these Atlanta shows, and they were all doing pray for Japan. Uh, I I don't know if merchandise is the right word, but at least some sort of fundraiser. And yeah, it's still something. I mean, I you know try to keep tabs on a lot of Dragon Gate super fans through Twitter, and every March 11th they have posts about it. It is it is gut wrenching.
1: It's something that I I don't know if you caught this, but basically when this happened of course sumo hall was canceled compilation gate that was going to be like their second time to run uh or the third time they were going to run sumo hall dragon gates never been back to sumo hall yeah and some of that is because of maybe superstition a little bit but a lot of that was because it was such an expensive endeavor for them and you i don't think they got a refund back for the deposit for it and for a company that wasn't Tokyo-based, that was just an unnecessary expense. And then that's how uh, Champion Gate kind of started up because Compilation Gate ended, and then Champion Gate would start up with a double shot in Osaka two every March and February. So, and I remember, uh, and I don't want to get too ahead of it, but the stories that like Chuck Taylor talked about on his way back from Japan, like, did you have any of that in your notes? No, I didn't. So basically, like Dragon Gate would continue, but. They basically sent Ronin home. And uh, like, I believe, I, I'm just going to check on cage match to see how much longer they wrestled there. But they pretty much like, because the big thing was they were going to be there for three weeks. But specifically, they were going to be there for the Sumo Hall show. And they stuck around for another like few days. And then they pretty much were like, oh, no, you need, well, because that's when the situation got much worse. Fukushima the nuclear reactor kind of failed it started to leak and break down and they're like oh, we're gonna send you home and they, they talked about being like we got sent to the airport with like plane and, and we got our plane tickets but our plane tickets weren't for like 24 hours but like we couldn't go back because they were all trying to take care of stuff like there but we had to go home." and check to talk about like yeah no we we hung out i think it was like in the narita airport for like a full day after i think their last show they did was in yamaguchi and then they before they went home so it's something that you know, kind of changed a lot of what I imagine the plans were for Ronin, what the plans were for both all three of these guys in Japan because, as you said, Rich Swan ends up becoming a regular there for the next two or three years. Uh, Johnny Gargano would be back, but this was it for Chuck Taylor in Japan, at least for Dragon Gate.
2: Yeah, and as for the rest of that Compilation Gate card, all of the important matches were made up. They did a show in Shinjuku face on April 12th, I believe, that that had the Owasa return match. Uh, the Twin Gate titles were defended eventually. World One uh, broke up, but then the Open the Dream Gate match was moved to the April 14th, Cork, and so they were back in Cork, and pretty much a month later. Right. and that is the show where World One breaks up, where Yamato defends the Freedom Gate title against Yasushi Kanda, and then you have an all-time epic Mochizuki versus Yoshino uh, Cork and Hall Dreamgate title match. It's not their best match together. It's actually the the crazy thing is it's not even their best match together in Cork and Hall, No, which either. is it's messed not. up to think about because this is a match of the year contender level match in 2011, which I think is an all-time loaded year of professional wrestling. And this isn't even their best match in Cork and Hall, but they returned a month after the fact. And, you know, it was business as usual from that point. You know, Awasa's back in the fold in Japan at that point. He obviously never comes over for a Dragon Gate USA, but you know, yeah, it completely changed things. It's just, we don't know what that compilation gate show would have been. We don't know how it would have affected business. What angles would have occurred there. We know Shinjiro Otani was supposed to be the second for Masaki Mochizuki in that title match, but After the show was canceled, he couldn't make the cork and Hall date, so he worked the Shinjuku face show instead. So just all sorts of minor ramifications, but we don't know what the major stuff could have been. Uh, But Mike, those are all of the notes I have. Sans, one thing that happened on the night of Open the Southern Gate, are you ready to hear about this CWF Mid-Atlantic card?
1: I'm just doing one last scan over everything just to make sure that I'm not forgetting anything, really. Um, No, uh, I don't really have too much there. I think Otani had something with Daichi Hashimoto that night, and that's why he didn't do that. By the yes, way. which Just we as... will talk about in a in a
2: future episode. <laughs> a lot of Daichi Hashimoto talk coming your way.
1: Yeah, no. Uh, one thing is the Shinjuku Face Show, and I was trying to look up to see if I got the exact quote. I believe that was a benefit show that they. Yes, were in. yeah, it was. Yeah. So what? Please lay it on me, case. I want to know about CWF Mid Atlantic.
2: Yes, uh, at one point, the most prestigious independent wrestling uh, wrestling promotion in the United States. Uh, But 2011 CWF Mid-Atlantic, this happened right before Open the Southern Gate in the same building. A show that featured the opening match of Nick Richards defeating Trevor Lee in the opening match. Uh, This is three years before Trevor Lee broke out at all. He is an unknown at this point. We also have a match between Lee Valiant and Chase Dakota, a CWF Mid-Atlantic tag team title match as Chiva Kid, who, Mike, do you know who
1: Chiva Kid is? I don't want to be accused of unmasking him, but he has specifically, like, similar build to one Andrew Everett.
2: Yes, uh, someone that pops up on Gate USA shows a few years from now, very similar build to Andrew Everett and his partner Kamikaze Kid. They fall to the VA Bomber's, of Jason Blade and Adam Page. And then your main event match Shane Helms defends the PWI International Heavyweight title against Rick Converse. I guess he wins the title rather. So a four match show with Trevor Lee, Adam Page, Chiva Kid, and Shane Helms. God
1: bless Southern Independent Professional Wrestling, Mike. Rick Converse was kind of the dawn of the Carolinas at that time. Like
2: someone I was unfamiliar with, but I'm sure he, you know, it looks like he worked
1: (laughs) Omega at CWF Mid-Atlantic at PWX. He hits the high
2: spots for me. Yeah, Yeah. no, he's, he's exactly what I'd hope he'd be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, so I guess this is the part where I can talk about this. Like I went to college in the next town over. uh, I did not know CWF Mid-Atlantic existed until I think it was my senior year of college or my super senior year. Yeah. I did a victory lap, Uh, but uh, (laughs) I took time off, though. But, <laughs> just,
2: just, just one last stroll through campus, fist high in the air. Like, yeah, this is my place. Uh, uh, dude,
1: do you want to get into a bit of Mike Spears lore for a second? I
2: would love to. You're a man of mystery. We've podcasted together uh, for hours and hours and
1: hours, and I still know very little about you. I, I I mean, I like being able to drop in nuggets of, like, little Spears facts here. So here's one. I Give me a hashtag Spears fact. Hashtag Spears fact. So when I did my victory lap, I planned it in such a way that I only had classes on Tuesday and Thursday, something that I highly encourage anyone to do if you can because in the classes I took in my last semester were a intro to Buddhism. I took a web development learning shockwave flash, something that doesn't really matter nowadays. And then I took an online course for uh, futurism, talking about like the idea of futurism and the singularity. This
2: is a fascinating schedule. It is actually a little similar to my, at least my schedule, where okay. I only have classes Monday and Tuesday all right, uh, this upcoming semester. And all of my classes are online. Now, that is not school-wide, at least yet, but I scheduled classes in March. And even then, I was like, you know what? I don't think we're going to have this under control by September. Let me schedule classes that could adapt to an online learning environment and that is what I did. So, I, you know, course structure, they're different than yours. Although, intro to Buddhism does sound very interesting. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, two days of classes a week. I will take that. I, that sounds very nice. I'm looking forward to that on my end.
1: But it, yeah, no, it's the way to go. I also have a minor in religion, which I kind of lucked into. I was like, oh, I, I need to take one world religion and then one book about the, or one class about the New Testament. And I got a minor. So I was like, okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> I was done with all my, uh, my major stuff uh the thing about cwf like it was like in a place that i would have gone to cwf Mid Atlantic shows if i knew they existed when i was in college i did not know they existed until one night uh, i was at ihop with friends and and walked in ricky morton (laughs) and i was just like there was only like one of my friends there that was like a wrestling fan to my level and so like everyone else was like mike why are you craning your neck like that and i was like a this isn't going to matter anything to you, but I need to go and text this person. And of course you go pull out, like this was pre-iPhone, pull out your, your Nokia and you like your text. I should have, I'd like a slide out keyboard that time.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I look, I, I had a few slide out keyboard
1: phones in my sure, day. Okay? I'm sure. not
2: that young. I have, I have done the, the three push to get the S. I know all about the slide out keyboard. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, so I, that was like right there. And then I was like, why is Ricky Morton in town? So then I got back to my apartment after that and I Googled uh, Ricky Morton, Burlington, North Carolina and it ended up that CWF Mid-Atlantic was there. And I looked at who all showed up there and I said, nah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and to this day, one of my smartest wrestling decisions I've ever made is never caring about CWF Mid-Atlantic.
2: Could have entered you into a vastly different internet community. I am glad <laughs> you ended up here, Mike. I, I am
1: glad you made it out alive. I mean, it's... I, I could have been deeply in the Hales first. What, what can I say? And I like Dylan Hales. He had a great episode on my Art School Albums podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: good man. But Mike, are you ready to open the Southern Gate? Let's do it.
1: All right. So this was at the CWF Mid-Atlantic Sportatorium or Coliseum. It, 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 they've changed it because they've changed venues so many times. Part like, Do you remember what they called it? It was the Mid-Atlantic Coliseum. Or Sportatorium. On this,
2: yeah, on this specific show, it's the Sportatorium.
1: Right. All right. So they had basically 200 people there. Uh, we had no pre-show matches as there are no bonus cards because every match is, is as important as the last. We start off the show with Ronin backstage without Rich Swan. They claim they left Rich Swan in Japan. They said they lost a bunch of matches and they retired Rich Swan, but they found someone else. And then someone came out wearing a, a Santo match. I did not. Okama was his name, and they say he was the new member of Ronin. He went back behind like a partition door, unmasked to be Rich Swan, and they were all very angry that Rich Swan came back with them.
2: What did I miss? Who did Rich Swan make mad? He gets buried against Brody Lee on the last show, and now Taylor and Gargano don't like him. And I don't understand it because Rich Swan has been awesome when he's not wrestling Homicide. I feel like Rich
1: Swan really upset someone, and I don't know why. I mean, it's it'll be something to watch about who made people mad on the show because I have some questions. Uh, then. <laughs> The next match is Brody Lee coming out with Blood Warriors. He's mad folks aren't showing them proper respect and that no one can beat them down. No one's standing out plotting. And out comes John Davis to fight him. And that this is the WW... I think it was on FIP, so I won't see WWN. But this is the DGUSA debut of John Davis versus versus Brody Lee with Nuruki Doi and Ricochet. Brody Lee pins John Davis with a sit-down powerbomb in six minutes and one second. Fun little match.
2: I am very, very curious to see how John Davis's run holds up in It USA, because there was a lot of stuff about it that that I've seen that I did not like that I thought was maybe a good idea that was poorly executed. And I also think John Davis, at least from memory, has some really good matches in Gate USA. Now this, the the star rating here will likely do this match an injustice because, you know, I, I gave it two and three quarter stars, not because it's a bad match. It just didn't get a ton of time, but the, the interaction between he and Brody here, you almost think like, God, these guys have a much better match in them because John Davis is coming off of being, Adam Pierce's, you know, literal henchman in the Dark City Fight Club and Ring of Honor on the HD net days, where if Pierce didn't like a dark match that was going on, he would send out Dark City and they would destroy them. John Davis is here. I thought he matched up well against Brody. Brody Lee is someone who, again, I continue to talk about it. I did not realize he could talk the way he did. Even in Dragon Gate USA, he is in a really valuable role as this American in Blood Warriors because Ricochet, even though he's super over, Ricochet just can't talk. And there have been times where Brody Lee has taken the microphone in these promo segments and has led the angle to where it needs to go. And he's very much a ring general in terms of the angles that are being on display. It's a very interesting role that I, I had no idea that Lee was that apt for such situations at that point in his career, but it's great to see. And I thought this was a fine way to kick off the show. I have no issue with John Davis as of
1: now. I'm someone that, at least when I was watching th- to it, and it's something that always bothered me with John Davis and DGUSA. I ended up like really liking him post DGUSA, and especially like the later evolve stuff. I, I always kind of joined there, but DGUSA, at least for me at the time, I remember having like almost like a is John Davis like involved in this? Like it just did not make sense to me. But this was, like, for, like, six minutes, they didn't get enough time to really have a full-on Haas battle. But it just was, like, you could see, like, John Davis at this time would get much better, I would say. Like, there was some stuff that, like, you could tell was stuff that was supposed to be, like, impressive. And you see later from John Davis, and it would be, like, awesome. Like, especially, like, in, in like, 2015, 2016, Evolve. But here, it just was not necessarily there. Uh, he did get a kick out of the truck stop, which was Brody's finish. Which yes was.
2: yes he did it got it got a decent reaction too i think people picked up on that
1: right yeah i went two and a half stars on it i thought this was a perfectly competent but short opener and i felt like that this was something that i'm ready for like in this period to have my opinion of john davis completely changed because i was definitely one of the people at the time i actually got into a twitter spat a long time ago in different twitter accounts ago with gabe sapolsky over john davis so this is something <laughs> that i am kind of excited to see this and this is he will be someone that we will be talking about through the remainder of DGUSA so and yeah that that is very true i i guess i did not
2: really think until just now that he stays he yes. is on the shows from i here on out pretty much i he's not on the final two double shots but i think every other show he's on and i know there's one match coming up months from now that i i know you and i have a differing opinion on it and i hope that it holds up in my mind the way i think it does and i hope i can change your mind on one particular john davis match but for a debut to me this was a success
1: yes yes and i know which match we're referring to and that's the match that i got into a twitter spot with gabe sapolsky about seven <laughs> that, years ago. that
2: makes sense that makes a lot of sense
1: so after this uh blood warriors laid out john davis brody keeps uh brody wants the crowd to applaud for him and thank him but the crowd was not having it like this crowd was it's an interesting crowd because burlington north carolina i probably should have this the front it's basically equidistant between uh greensboro north carolina and raleigh durham so like it's like 30 minutes one way 30 minutes the other it's like not a bad location you're trying to get play- people from both places there i mean the, the crowd was full i think it was like 250 normally and they got 200 in here and the crowd i thought was pretty good throughout this entire show which you know doing a dragon system show in the middle of mid-atlantic territory is something
2: yes that is a recurring thought i had watching this show was like it seems like the crowd wants to like this show right. but they're not entirely sure what it is because again like you look at the cwf card that we just read like even
0: in the hobby it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks
2: And Andrew Everett, who was doing flying at the time, I'm sure, as Chiva Kid and then Adam Page and Trevor Lee, who was nothing at this point, not the Trevor Lee we came to know on the national independent scene. Like, you have to remember, that show was headlined by Shane Helms and a guy named Rick Converse. Like, it was southern independent professional wrestling. And as the show goes on and Pac begins to do his moves, like, it just took the crowd a little bit to warm up. And I think there's... There's a few matches on the show, one in particular, where it's like, man, if that if that match happened in front of a hot Philly crowd or a hot Chicago crowd, that would really be something. And I think there are times in this show where the crowd drags the matches down a little bit. Okay. Because th- this style, I don't know, this style needs an, a hot audience, just like the Drangit USA house style, which is... Uh, different than the current Dragon House style, which Mike and I have been talking about when we've been doing our weekly updates. But like, I think this show was a, a good show that could have been a great show had there been a really receptive audience. I I don't think anything on this show, with the exception of one segment, which I enjoyed how much the crowd shat on it, but like nothing was really rejected on this show. I just don't think things
1: were maybe praised as much as they should have been. You see and we'll get into this more, I had think I have a greatly divergent opinion on this show. Okay, so, very very. So,
2: I look forward to hearing it. Yeah,
1: so the next segment was Air Fox having a backstage promo. He said he debuted on the last pay-per-view, but on this show, he was going to break out. And that led us to our first breakout challenge match, Kyle Matthews versus Lindsay Dorado versus Sugar Duncan versus Jimmy Rave. So... Lince Dorado, there must have been something that moved around because originally that was supposed to be John Davis in that spot, and he got moved up to the opener, the singles match. So Lince Dorado was on the show. I think this is like right after, right before, like him and Gay, him and Mike Quackenbush had a big falling out. I want to say so.
2: That sounds right. Yeah, and, and Lince is the guy who jumped out at me at this right. match. Is you know he was on the bonus cards of the first few shows. He's in the big cluster on the open, the Freedom Gate show, and the Generation Now match. I thought he had improved drastically since then. I thought Lince Dorado was the star of this match.
1: Yeah, I absolutely thought he was the star of this match. Sadly, he would not advance as a uh, 2016 Wrestler of the Year, Jimmy Rave, <laughs> defeated Sugar <laughs> Dunkington with a Shining Wizard in five minutes and two seconds. It was, uh, this is the part about the show where I think we're gonna, that, that like I would major issues probably more so than you. This breakout challenge, you take this away from this card and you have what would become like what was like what a solid Dragon Gate USA show was looking at this point, in my opinion. Yes, but you had all this—you had someone that we're going to talk about in this post match here, and you had like all of this here that just like the non-Dragon Gate related stuff here that dragged it down such a bit that this is one of my least favorite DG USA shows because of how badly the stuff dragged it down. Just because, yeah, you know, I I think that's
2: entirely fair. This uh, my my issue with the breakout challenge was it's not even that the stuff wasn't great it's that i don't want to pay the money to the dranget usa brand to see jimmy rave and i like jimmy rave mind you but the the finals of the breakout challenge that is not a match that belongs on a dranget usa show if it happens on a devolve card fine but that is not a dranget usa match i felt sugar dunkerton was uh just not up to par of the normal worker kyle matthews kind of the same deal yeah like, when you're on a show with Brody Lee and Rich Swan and Pac and Akira Tozawa, it becomes really, really clear that you are you cannot hang with those guys if you were on the level of a Sugar Dunkerton or a Kyle Matthews. Again, the one guy that really surprised me in this match was Lince Dorado, who I think should have advanced. I understand Rave's the hometown guy. You want to give him the spot. Obviously, Gabe had a prior relationship with him through their Ring of Honor days. But this was—I've it. it I've never said this before. This match made me want to see more Lince Dorado
1: yeah no Lindsay was someone that i gotta see pretty much from the jump and by the he was someone that gets a lot got a lot of kind of crap during his shakara event because of how quickly he was pushed it was very similar to like a dragon diet thing in a lot of ways Mm. but in 2011 i mean like he was really coming together and i mean he'd later become a wwe superstar he would later do the cruiserweight challenge and kind of prove people wrong so seeing him here was like a pleasant thing here versus going like Oh, God, Lindsay Dorado's here, which was something that people really had in, like, 2007 through 2009. So, I'm with you there. So, post-match, Johnny Fairplay comes out in an insane getup. He is called Sammy Hager by the crowd. He's here to sign a breakout s- star. Spoiler, Jimmy Rave is his favorite. He said Jimmy Rave is my fave, Sorry. which I really liked. Jimmy Rave is his fave. Spoiler alert first. So, Johnny... Fairplay of TNA and more so of Survivor fame was on this show.
2: Okay, that's what I was going to ask, because I specifically did not Google it, but I did not know who Johnny Fairplay was, and I was very confused as to why in the Newswire and on commentary, people seemed really pumped about Johnny Fairplay being here. It was just another man in a suit that I very much liked, but just another dude on the card to me.
1: So... Johnny Fairplay was known for his time on Survivor, where he outright lied that his grandmother was dying, and they threw okay. a challenge yeah, yeah, for him yeah. to do this. And he kind of spun this out into like a re- like the cele- celebrity reality was a big thing at this time. Case here's the thing you need to learn about the post-recession years of 2008 <laughs> through 2011. If, as John Boyce quite astutely put, in the 1990s everyone went insane, we went, we were still insane at this point. So j- he was a big figure. I remember like he got like. Six figure deals from Impact, like coming out of this. Yeah, that sounds
2: like yeah, that sounds right. So
1: like, yeah, no, he was a figure, and I mean, it just was another thing. Not on, not on my usa show. No,
2: no, why? I just again, like this segment wasn't even offensively bad. It's just not what I want to see on this show. On again, a show with Pac and Ricochet and Naruki Doi. I don't want Johnny Fairplay in that mix as well.
1: Yep. No. And. We would have more of them a little bit later. We had an obnoxious music video since this is on the Per review and this was the first show, I believe, on WWN Live. We'll talk more about it as we get into WrestleMania weekend. They had they were trying to show off Freedom Fight, which was, I believe, one of their first I pay reviews. I don't think it was even available on WWN Live, so I think they were trying to like promote like the DVD sale there with like just like it was like two-minute video in the middle of an IA pay-per-view to do this.
2: It was a really long Promo video, which it didn't have to be. If it was a minute long, it would have been fine. But like you said, it was like two, two and a half minutes long,
1: for a show that wasn't that good. I mean, we were. This is not like the China video for WWE Live, but this is kind of the first thing that they had. Nothing,
2: have nothing is like the China video, my friend. Nothing is on that level.
1: After that very awkward music video, that would be a precursor of things to come. We had a singles match, the first part of the stable shootout as. Simi Callahan defeated Rich Swan in nine minutes and forty-four seconds with the stretch muffler. And we talked about like Rich Swan kind of being a little bit like you could tell like that 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 people were like frustrated or something. This match felt like almost like an outright burial of Rich Swan.
2: It I I don't know if it felt like a burial of Rich Swan as much as it is clear throughout the entire Triple shot the booking of this weekend that Gabe is all in on Sammy Callahan at this point. I think Callahan looked really good in this match. I don't know. I really liked this match. Oh no, it starts too. off. It starts off really hot. I think it, it it falls apart a little bit for no particular reason. I just think they lost steam as they headed towards the closing stretch. But this is the kind of stuff. Again, it's not an anti. I guess I'm going to say anti-American. It's not that I don't want Americans on these Drangit USA shows. They just need to be on the level of a Rich Swan or a Sammy Callahan, because right now Callahan's brought it in all of his appearances. And I've said, you know, Swan has been really, really good outside of the homicide match, which was not his fault. I I thought this was great. And I should note real quick, I don't think they came out to this song on the Northeast Triple Shot. I think this is the first time that Ronan uses the uh, Don't Die Digging by the Graduate entrance theme, which is the, the out of control. That song kicks ass, and I completely had forgotten that that is a part of Dragnet USA, and I am now excited to hear that song on the rest of the Dragnet USA shows. What a marvelous entrance theme for Ronan.
1: Yeah, they were kind of weird about entrance theme. I don't know if people all brought the MP3s or the DV- or the CDs for the in-house, at least in Burlington, because you had Brody Lee come out to I Like Cola. You had this, which is more known as Johnny Gargano's theme. And at yeah. this time, I thought that Johnny Gargano was still using Metric Gold Girls and Guns. Like, that was kind of his big thing, which is another kind of crazy thing. Like, Johnny Gargano, for all he is, he has some interesting tastes to, like, independent music that I think are—it's a different bin on it that I like, so— Yeah, He's
2: he's an interesting guy. I would call him a dork, but I'll say he's an interesting guy. Oh, no, he's a
1: dork. Absolute dork. (laughs) He's a Funko dork. (laughs) Yes, he is. Yes. So, so like, the reason why I thought this was, like, a squash was, basically, Sammy took about 75% of this match. There was a really sick ramp spot, and then a long beatdown section where he was lighting uh rich swan up with chops and punches and then we had like a really kind of fun like little bit of a shine for rich swan before sammy just completely took him down and took him out with the stretch muffler like it was a pretty for like a 10 minute match it was a pretty simple 10 minute match and it was effective with that it just like with how things went and like how things are it made me wonder if like the intro promo and like with rich swan like losing very definitively in this match made me wonder if like he is getting buried here, but I went three and a quarter on this match.
2: I went three and a half. I, okay. I again, I, re- I really liked it.
1: Yeah. I thought this was a real solid one. And you know, for like this, the show has a lot of matches and luckily the matches that should have time got time. Some of the matches that didn't need time needed to lose more time. Cause I felt like they took forever, which we will get into in a second. We do go backstage case to John Moxley. He's all alone in Burlington, North Carolina, but that's okay. He's wearing a sweet Baja hoodie. And he wants to take out all of Blood Warriors. He'll do it one-on-one. And then he cut, like, the Ruby Sky promo and the Ruby Sky angle by the end of this show and by the end of this weekend. It's just one of those things that this is something that they did in 2011. And it's something that in 2011 I was kind of like, uh, okay, he's really going hard on this kind of thing. And in 2020 it's just uncomfortable and, and not necessary in my mind.
2: I, I we'll talk about the Rebbe Sky thing later because I, you know, it's it's whatever. I cannot believe the way Kamikaze USA imploded mm-hmm. and they did nothing.
1: Not they nothing did at all.
2: Nothing with it. It is they are broken up at a post show promo that is filmed backstage. Yamato's not on the show. Mox says he's, you know, he's healing up for his title match tomorrow, which is fine with me. But this is Mox's last weekend in the company, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. It's his last weekend in the company, and you are clearly trying to make Akira Tozawa a thing. How is this what you do? How is Mox just all alone when, as we talked about a year ago, they're in Canada, and we can't go one match without a Kamikaze USA interference? Like they were dominating these shows the entirety of 2010 and then 2011 rolls around and I understand that Blood Warriors form and I understand that Blood Warriors versus Ronan is and quite honestly should be the focus of the promotion but how do you not do more with the end of Kamikaze USA because it is known going into this weekend that Mox is leaving the territory how is this what they come up with I cannot believe they squandered so many
1: opportunities with John Moxley on his last weekend. And, like, to play a little bit of Gabe Advocate here, I'm just going to play Gabe Advocate here. Shingo only returned to Dragon Gate two weeks before this, after he had his shoulder injury. So Shingo was not going to be in the cards for these shows whatsoever. So you had Shingo out of the equation. Neither Yoshino or Yamato were on this show. They were already in Atlanta, as was Stalker Chikawa. Stalker Chikawa doesn't need to concern himself with Burlington, North Carolina, to be fair. No, 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 he does not. So, like, you're left with Moxley and Tozawa. We had the big turn to end the United weekend, and you don't do anything with that here where you really could use that there to provide, like, a storyline about how Kamikaze USA is imploding. Like, that's the thing that gets me, is, yes, your hand dealt with. You don't have Shingo there. He was... The leader of kamikaze in japan i mean he is the with the exception of shima and maybe is out at this point the most well-known person to your audience as a dragon gate native yamato is taking the night off he's already in atlanta they would run a seminar the next day led by i think it was yoshino and Pac, but yamato was there as well so you have like these two people here, which should be the focus of the Kamikaze dissolution, right? Like It should be about Moxley and Tozawa, and it does get more into it as the weekend goes along. You can't do one thing here to play up that, and that's the frustrating thing to me about John Moxley on his last weekend, is you had this match that unless you were watching the end of a pay-per-view that was on the air two weeks before this, you read the report and that was it.
2: Uh, again, it's they didn't even break them up in front of an audience. And this is a show. Now I hate to complain about the main event because the main event was great. I don't really want to change that, but if you're going to build a show around the stable shootout and you need a true main event, do Moxley versus Tozawa on this show, have Tozawa win going into his Brave Gate match the next night, and then, you know, do whatever with Mox after this. It is just such a squandered opportunity to do nothing to just not really even have an angle outside of Mox kicking him in the gut and saying "You're out" and that is it. I, I was unaware or had blocked this out of my memory that this is how Kamikaze USA ends. This is just such a massive missed opportunity.
1: And it's something where you like look at this and you look at John Moxley became, with the exception of maybe Ricochet, Ricochet wasn't around for all these things. Rick, John Moxley became like. The American Western face of Dragon Gate USA. He's the guy. It's him.
2: He's the top American star in this promotion. I don't think there's a close number two, and I think the number two is
1: either Brody or Ricochet, but Mox has a lap on them. And he's been a f- focal point pretty much since that second uh, Chicago show. Yes. And Even
2: is... I mean the first Philly show where he debuts, he gets a giant angle. Now, granted, the angle is bad because it's him and Brian Kendrick, but he gets a giant yeah. angle
1: on his debut show. So, I mean, third show in the company, and now we're in the 17th show. So, like, this in, we're ending... We're, in two weeks, we'll have ended the John Moxley era of Dragon Gate USA. And this is how they chose to have him go out. So, this was not the Carlson I had put in my head, but this is definitely something to be noted, that this is such a lost opportunity here to make it feel more impactful, especially in comparison to how there would be farewells in the future.
2: I, I will... I will give it the, I'll, I'll let it play out, because there's two more shows this weekend. Right. Maybe there's stuff I'm forgetting. We'll let it play out. But as of right now, I think it is a horrible, horrible missed opportunity.
1: Absolutely. And something else that was horrible, Breakout Challenge Part 2. Eric Cannon versus Air Fox versus Facade versus Shima Zion. Uh, Eric Cannon won with a Brain Buster on Facade in nine minutes, or eight minutes, two seconds, in case... This is my worst match in D.G.U.S.A. history. One and a quarter oh, star. Oh no,
2: no, no, it is not that bad.
1: Oh, I think it's terrible.
2: It is not that bad. No. Now, here's the thing. It's well, it's not. It's not worse than the two homicide matches. It's just not because, yes, you have facade, which we'll get to. But Shima's eye on A.R. Fox and Eric Cannon. They pulled their weight. Okay, they did all right. This was not a great match by any means. But this was not a a bad match, okay? It's hard to have a bad match when you have A.R. Fox, who obviously becomes one of the key players in Gate USA. You have Eric Cannon, who his big push starts this weekend. And Shima Zion's a guy who we'll talk about a little bit about a month from now as we get into the next triple shot in the spring and early summer in May, or I think it's early June. He's a guy that doesn't come back to Gate USA because he gets a really big opportunity. But if he doesn't get that place in TNA, I think he becomes a a guy, at least on the undercards of Gate USA, because I think he was talented enough even in 2011 to hang around. The issue in this match is, Mike, did you catch Facade's nickname as he was coming to the ring? Oh, he's a suburban terrorist. But... The suburban terrorist terrorist mike what are we doing with our lives why is this our hobby that we are breaking down the suburban
1: terrorist well i'm gonna push back first on shima zion i felt like that he later became a great wrestler but at this time not ready for prime time he, he looked like he was going at a quarter speed with people like a.r fox who speed shouldn't be an equation i do think that that opportunity that he gets that we'll talk about a little bit later was the best thing out of his career i think he's one of the few people that's actually incredibly benefited from being there but i felt like that shima zion was underwhelming at best in this but facade is i think maybe like homicide you at least have a reason to book homicide facade i don't believe he was living in the carolinas i feel like i'd be able to see someone with with <laughs> platinum blonde dreadlocks around being a suburban terrorist and terrorizing people in the night which hey larry legend you put emphasis on that call, but you didn't like want to like pull Facada over and say you sound like a total dipshit in this intro. And then he comes out, he spray paints a, a piece of paper, and he hands it to a fan, and it's which is
2: the worst, which is the worst gimmick. It is the worst garbage. thing I've ever seen. The, and it, and he's awful. The, the worst wrestler the, in the US radical USA. graffitiist It is terrible. It, you say he's the worst worker in at USA at this time. I think yeah.
1: that homicide. There's at least a reason why you book homicide in the Northeast facade brings something to the table he ruins this match i think shima zion didn't do much help either and i felt bad for air foxing and, Ken and this thing it was slow for an eight minute match just felt like it was 20 minutes there was like a weird moonsault that someone missed i went straight into an arm bar for whatever reason it was shima zion missed a moonsault but he acted like he hit it and went to an arm bar and i just hated my life guys i hated my life watching this match Defend this match, I, please. Push back.
2: I, no, 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 no. Because it's not a great match. It's two and three quarters. Okay, it's not. Two it's and not three one quarters. I, yes, it's not one that I want to go back and watch. I thought Ar Fox and Eric Cannon, and Ar Fox and Eric Cannon in particular, make this match all right. And again, I like Shiva Zion a little bit more than you. I think he's someone that would have improved if he got more time in at USA. That's again, fair. That's the fair. The issue with this match. The issue with this match is facade. And thank God, thank God. He did not win this match. It was Eric Cannon, not A.R. Fox, which surprised me. I assumed Fox was going to win this. It's Eric Cannon who comes away with a victory. Do
1: you know that, that other nicknames that he's had for Facade are the Neon Ninja, the Bomber, and the Aerosol Assassin?
2: Neon Ninja's not terrible. I don't hate that.
1: All right, his uh, finish, signature moves, as listed on Cage Mass, the Arashikagi Driver, Hyper Crush on Capitals, and the Dreadlock.
2: <laughs> you know what dreadlock is is good <laughs> i i mean like i don't hate
1: that <laughs> this is a guy who i just like watched this and i'm like he had to be if he was like the best person from the tryouts why didn't you pull on andrew everett put him back under the hood and put him in this match
2: this i hope this doesn't sound like mean-spirited but fasan has cage match matches Going back to 2006, right? Yeah. And the only match he has in his match guide is a match from July 4th, 2020, on the Game Changer Backyard Show. I watched that show.
0: It's, yeah,
1: he, there's fire I, again.
2: I'm sure. I'm sure he's a nice guy. The spray painting is dumb. Stop doing that. But I'm sure he's a nice guy. But I have never seen Facade have a
1: good match. No, no, he's never had a good match, and this sucked this sucked it did it was very it was, it was not great again not great so after this match jimmy rave said in a very short promo that he'd see jimmy that jimmy rave would see eric Kane later and then we had the second match of this stable shootout as john moxley face off against naruki doi and naruki doi won with a bakatari sliding kick in 10 minutes 53 seconds in case this might be one of my favorite john moxley matches in dg usa
2: really, really fun finishing stretch in this match. It's uh, the second singles match Mox has against a Drengate proper guy. He wrestled BB Hulk in Philly a few shows ago. Now we've got Doi. It was a, a good match and then the finishing stretch where uh, Mox Hits the Doi fives and then proceeds to slap the shit out of Doi. Doi comes right back. It's a Doi five of his own and then slaps Moxley. Moxley kind of gives into the slaps, gives him the finger, and then gets his head cleaned off with a Bakatari sliding kick for the win. It's it's a really good match, and the last two minutes are are great. It is it is fun to watch Mox in this environment because the impression I've always got is that he didn't care for the Drangate style. If there wasn't enough selling. It was too fast for him. And it, it makes sense given the fact that he never really worked against a Drangate proper talent. But I thought he meshed really well against BB Hulk in Philly, and I thought he looked great against Naruki Doi here.
1: Yeah, uh, I would have to say that Naruki Doi deciding to do a figure four in the Mid-Atlantic country and kind of wrestling like a traditional like territories main event or coming to local talent match because I because at this point norikido is full on heel and he's just acting like how one would assume a territory champ or like a world champion would be coming to your town facing off against your up-and-comer and that was kind of the match we had here and i thought it ruled like this is a match that i felt like the crowd finally started getting into the show in a lot of ways during this match and the final the final stretch was something really special like they, there was about a good solid 30 seconds of them just slapping the crap out of each other with the heaviest hands in wrestling. Naruki Doi just peppering John Moxley, and then Moxley going like, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to do this for a bit. And I, I have to say, I think Moxley was great in this, but I think a lot of this was Naruki Doi deciding to play to John Moxley's strengths. I went three and three quarters on this match, I loved it.
2: I was at three and a half, but I can't knock you at all for the three and three quarters. Uh, it's... I mean, Doi doing the figure four, it it has to be calculated. Nobody on this roster loves American wrestling more than Naruki Doi. So that makes sense. And again, I really, I, I would have liked Mox to at least stick around to the end of 2011. Because I really think there was a lot more stuff for him to do in this promotion. Because again, his time is spent wrestling Brian Kendrick and Paul London, and Tommy Dreamer, and Jimmy Jacobs, and Homicide. And there's an entire half of the roster that he never touches. I mean, we never get Moxley versus Gargano, Moxley versus Swan. There's never, you know, Moxley versus Mochizuki. Like, he is a guy that leaves... And it feels like there's so much more left on the table, which is maybe what is so frustrating about the kamikaze thing is that it doesn't even feel like he goes out with a bang, at least up to this point, when there was just so much more that he could have done. And I obviously don't begrudge the guy for signing a contract and then having the next decade of his career play out the way it did. He he made the right decision. But specifically in the Dragon Gate USA universe, it just seems like there could have been more here. And from the Hulk match and from the Doi match, I think it's clear that if he wanted to, he could have worked very successfully against the Drangate talent, at least in America. I don't know if that would have translated to Japan or not, but in America, he could have had a few really big matches.
1: Yeah, and the match that was left on the table that could have happened, that really frustrates me. Like, it made sense why it didn't happen when the guy was over here, but him versus Misaki Mochizuki would have been incredibly interesting.
2: Oh, it would have been fascinating.
1: It would have been absolutely fascinating. And this is a match, like, on a show where, like, basically, the, at least in my opinion, it's a pick-and-choose show that I did not, other than, like, a couple matches I really enjoyed. This is worth watching just because it's a different style of match than you expect in DGUSA. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. All right. And then next, we had a backstage promo with Eric Cannon. He uh, says he's not broken through anything. He's going to break Jimmy Ray's face. And that led us to another promo of WWN Live. It, it's now here. WWN Live is a thing. And then we have Rebby Sky. Rebby Sky is here again. She thanks everyone for coming out, kind of just being like the we she's the person because there was no real go home promo that she was thanking everyone for coming out. John Moxley comes out and says that she's stalking him and that she wants to date him, but he, then he says a lot of really gross stuff. And then a girl comes out who is with him in the previous thing and they have a fight we had a lot of cat fight references being made both by john moxley over the microphone and by commentary and this was another thing not in my dragon gate that i want to see it was just bad
2: no uh the rebbe's guy like her crowd work got the softest most awkward applause it was like, it was very polite. Like, it was right. like, I guess we have to, I guess we have to play along right now, even though we don't want to. And then the box stuff, like, I don't think, I don't think these promos in particular were overtly offensive or blatantly awful, but it's also just not what I'm ever looking for in my wrestling. Like, it's just an, an aspect of storytelling that I just don't care about. Like, and it's not that, you know, what an air in 2020 shouldn't air in 2020 it or 2011, like on this show, it's like I the the Rebbe Sky thing, I have to know why why was she getting booked? I just don't understand to bring her down south. I get it if it's the Northeast, I and mean, I get it in the sense that logistically she lives in the Northeast, so fine, bring her on board, even though she did nothing on those triple shot or on that triple shot, but to bring her out again, I just I'm missing it. Like I don't understand it.
1: Well, There'll be a reason why that we get to in the next two weeks case.
2: I look forward to it.
1: So that was a segment.
2: That was, that, that's exactly that it. That was a rough segment.
1: That was a segment. And then we had Shima versus Johnny Gargano. This is a rematch of their match. They had almost a year to this point. This was one of the stable shootout matches. And Shima put away Johnny Gargano in 20 minutes and 11 seconds with the Meteora and this was a re- this was probably my second favorite match of the night. I feel like that this was very interesting and in how differently it was worked. You know, it was worked very differently from like their first match, which was very much a inversion on Shima, like eating people's lunch that he didn't respect. And it, it really turned into like a really like big closing stretch. Shima took a really gross looking lawn dart and super kick near fall that I bought into, and they were really like. They like slapping people on this show, and these two were definitely keying into it. What were your thoughts on this?
2: It's fun to to compare this to the one-year anniversary match where Gargano was the heel, and he's really cocky, and he's not quite on Shima's level, but he thinks he is. And then here, even though Shima wins the match, Shima's working heel, Gargano's the face, and it feels like it's pretty close to a level playing field. And unfortunately, this is the last singles match these two have against one another. They had one more scheduled at the start of 2014, but that never ends up happening because Shima is injured. So this is it for the Shima Gargano matches. And it feels like, it really feels like there's one or two more left in the tank, just given the way the rest of this promotion plays out. I'm really disappointed we don't get another one of these matches because... Yeah, they, they, I think they played to the strengths of the venue, where, again, some of the flying didn't totally get over, some of the flying was sloppy, and I think that just hurts the overall effect that it has. So Gargano and Shima just kind of kicked the shit out of each other, and it was really, really fun to watch, and Gargano kept on surviving, and surviving, he kicked out of the perfect driver, and then... The finishing stretch of this match, Shima hits the swine, the swine, and right before he goes up for the meteora, he just punches Gargano in the back of the neck, and it is such a small thing, but that is why Shima is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. It. In that moment, he had been working heel the entire match. But if you had any confusion or reservations about Shima turning heel and about Blood Warriors dominating this promotion, watching him hit Gargano with his finisher and then punch him so hard in the back of the neck, it was like, oh my god, this is character building. Like, I know exactly who this guy is now. And then he flattens Gargano with the Meteora, gets the win. I went three and three quarters. I went four.
1: Yeah, Uh, I, I, I do not begrudge you for that at all. This is something that... And it's nothing you can blame the promotion for because you can't you can't blame people for getting injured. But you really had like this nice storytell that would have been perfect when you would have the ace Johnny Gargano going against uh, Shima right after his monster reign, right after all the stuff that would that I mean like Shima's gonna be the big figure in both DG USA and D G for like the next until basically when he got pulled from that card and I don't think he appeared again in Dragon Gate USA before that show after that show so like no he did not that is something that's left on the table that sadly never would come to pass to no fault of anyone's there but this is such a special thing and something that i noticed earlier that i have to imagine that these guys were non none to please especially shima there was two different instances of the uh and i don't really like this spot but it's something that worked here and it did not work earlier i, I think it was like kyle matthews did this spot maybe with a with Valencia Dorado or Sugar Donkey then where they do a super kick that knocks both of them out at the same time.
2: Yeah, there were two of those on this show. I noticed that as well.
1: Okay, cool. And then it happened here, but it happened here like right after like this huge like 15 minutes in the match. These two guys are tired. They've been at each other's throats now for a quarter of an hour. And then like they're going last gasp doing this, and then they do the knockout kick there that worked perfectly here. And it went right into the closing stretch that... I, I got to wonder if, like, backstage, like, going over the monitor when this happened, like, I can see Shima, like, shake his head and be like, not so good. And then, like, this, because I, I feel like that was, like, a crucial moment in this match that was kind of hurt by the fact that you had it happen in a nothing four way earlier.
2: I, I, Mike, I completely agree. That's something I glossed over in my notes that I, I, I should have brought up, but you're right. Because I think the double super kick in the four way looks pretty bad. I think they nailed it here because it's. You know, I think about the modern wrestling landscape, but again, we haven't seen Shima work a match since April 1st, and we're recording this in mid-July. And I think you just kind of forget how good this guy is. And this Gargano match is just another one where it's like, holy shit, he's got this in his catalog, and this is not in the the upper echelon of Shima matches. You know, this is probably one of his 100 best singles matches, and, and he's got this out there. He is just a master of the craft.
1: Yeah. And then we had another awkward music video this time it was for united nyc which i guess they really were getting over the whole entire thing from uh f- from going to wn live but it was like another two minute video it would be one of the things to really to really come from the future but after this we had the breakout challenge final where eric cannon defeated jimmy rave with the glimmering warlock in nine minutes in case yeah this match happened
2: not a match I want on my Dragon Gate USA shows. It's fine. Uh, you know, I gave it two and a half. Yeah, Average professional same. wrestling match. Two and not, a half. Not, not bad. Not bad. Two pros in there. Eric Cannon, you know, has uh, some talent. Jimmy Rave, depending on his health, you know, has talent. Uh, not not what I want to see. And just a match that, you know, you said it what, went nine minutes. I mean, it felt so much longer than that. And again, it wasn't even bad. It's just, it's, think about the match that came before this and the match that comes after this. Why is this on the show?
1: Yeah, and I think that like, that's the thing about this, and why I'm so down on this Southern Gate show is, you look at the DGUSA stuff, and they get like pretty much the proper time you'd expect. I would maybe like to see another four minutes of Moxley and Doy. but then you like, you have the previous four-way, the one that in won, that felt like it was nine minutes going on thirty. This match, at this point, like on the show, I was like, because I remember how much I enjoyed the main event, I was like, okay, it's going to get better, but like I kept like checking. The playtime was like, is this match not over? We still have a big main event coming after this, and it just was not there, and it was not that fine. Uh, Do you have any other big thoughts about Eric Cannon being our breakout st- challenge star?
2: Surprise, it's not AR Fox, but given what's coming next, it doesn't entirely surprise me.
1: Yep, and then Johnny Fairplay came out. Johnny Fairplay said he would not sign John, uh, Eric Cannon. Eric Cannon was fine at this, and kudos to Johnny Fairplay. He took a really awesome Total Anarchy.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I was annoyed with the Johnny Fairplay thing because I just didn't, I didn't know who it was. I didn't care until Mike explained it to me. Then I knew exactly who it was. He takes the total anarchy, which is an insane move to take for anyone, but for him to do it, he took a pretty good bump on it. It was like, all right, you know what? I wouldn't book him, but if you're going to book Johnny Fairplay, he better be taking a bump on his head because he can do a pretty good job of that.
1: Right. Yeah. And I mean, he's someone that trained to be a wrestler. He was someone that, was trained under uh, Roddy Piper, of all people. I did not know that. Yeah, like, the thing was that for a while, people thought that he was kind of just, like, uh, his bag boy, for lack Mm. of better words. Like, he was just, like, the guy that he trained I brought around and basically, you know, used him as, like, a servant. So it was, like, one of those things. Like, but, yeah, no, he definitely was someone that was trained to be a pro wrestler, and he did that for a while before, and then a lot more after. I mean, he did not... So this was all after the TNA stuff and he would have like a couple more things. He would be on a promotion I've never heard of called WFX, where he swindled Eugene, Gene Densmore, Eugene, out of pocket money in a trick reminiscent of his survivor lie. So he, he was That saying, sounds
2: really bad. That I do not want to watch that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And his wife at this time was on Tough Enough. Oh, good for her. And he lived in North Carolina. So that's probably why he was on these shows as well. But let's get to the main event. This was a Dream Tag Team Partners match. And what Dream Partners we would have as Pac would team with Ricochet and Akira Tozawa would team with Chuck Taylor. Uh, Pac won in 20 minutes and 44 seconds with the British Airways on Chuck Taylor. And in case I'm going to let you take, them, take it first, this is an incredible match.
2: So obviously it's the only time Chuck Taylor and Akira Tozawa team together because there's no other circumstance for them teaming together. I I would like to see it, but it it just wouldn't make sense. Ricochet and Pac, years later, they are in the same unit in World 1 International, but Pac's time in World 1 International, I believe they form in March of 2012, and then Pac spends all of May and part of June doing best of the super juniors and then leaves the promotion in July. So it's not like he has a lot of time in that unit. So this is also the only time that Ricochet and Pac team together in a two on two match. There are some six mans where they're on the same team, but this is their only straight two versus two uh, tag match, which is a shame because it's, you know, we I've talked, especially in the Philly episode about how good Pac is in the ring, but to see he and Ricochet, do this annoyed partners deal and to do it so well in in a way that didn't feel campy, didn't feel like something TNA would do where all of the tag team partners hated each other, where they had a rightful grudge and integrated it into a match that they still wanted to win. It was, it was marvelous to see. And there's, there's one particular section in this match where Ricochet and Chuck Taylor are in the ring. And Chuck Taylor helped train Ricochet. They've wrestled each other a million times. And they do a sequence that is is probably closer to Lucha than it actually is the Drangeet style. They do like a Lucha sequence in the ring where everything is so quick and so tight and it's unreal. And Taylor gets sent to the outside and Ricochet goes to hit the ropes to do a dive, but Pac shoves him out of the way and then does a dive of his own. And that 60-second sequence right there is world-class, elite-level professional wrestling. And quite honestly, this match, that spot, but this match in particular, or I'm sorry, this match, but that spot in particular, it made me wonder why Chuck Taylor is the one that kind of got the short end of the stick with the Ronin guys in Japan. Because to me, Chuck Taylor is the one, you know, Rich Swan makes sense. He does the standing 450. He's got the rapid entrance. I guess Johnny Gargano, because he was a champion, but I'm just very surprised that Chuck Taylor never went over to Drangit again after his March tour, because I feel like he is on the level of a Tozawa, Ricochet, or Pac in this match.
1: Yeah, and Chuck's talked about it since then. He's firmly of the belief that Shima hates him.
2: Yes, which, yeah, no, that is uh, on record, <laughs> I think by multiple sources at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Shima, no big uh, sexy Chuck E.T. fan, but i'm glad you talked about ricochet and pack and like how well they played this because the team i wanted to talk about akira tozawa and chuck taylor are like this galaxy grain like perfect tag team in a lot of ways like the only time that of course they ever teamed but they work so well together that you want to see like hey tozawa's really down for ronin thing like i remember like, coming out of this match thinking if because at the time i didn't know that tozawa was heading back to japan so soon i was like could he be a member of ronin like Wouldn't that be, like, an interesting inversion that all these Americans want to join the uh, Japanese stables, but then a uh, Japanese wrestler from the home promotion joins one of the American stables? It's Like, that would have been awesome. Like, Tozawa teaming with Rich Swan and teaming with with Johnny Gargano would have been something, and teaming with Chuck Taylor would have been something I would have loved to see. And I thought that these two had, like, a really cool chemistry in this match. And something that's, like, with this that's also really great, like, there was, like, this strike exchange with pack and tozawa was in this because next night they would have a Bravegate match and this was like something that like they did this and like after like the first strike tozawa is on wobbly legs he's in wobbly legs in a way that like makes perfect sense and not comical whatsoever it was like oh he looks like he just got rocked for a bit but he's trying to stay in the fight i thought that was exceptional there was like something that i thought was really interesting because you have pack and ricochet teaming up there in the middle of this year-long feud over who is the best high flyer who is the brave gate champion here and how that played off there and you have tozawa added into this the fact that tozawa is the next person getting a brave gate shot and it just it kind of like all went together tozawa did a tope that was a classic davy going right out of frame into this and this is just like a really fun match with an awesome dynamic that is one of those matches that's the first time and only time if gabe, if gabe put that title to this match that would have fit it very well. And I loved it. Uh, Pac, did get busted open on a head, that looked really ugly. And Chuck Taylor like looked over and you see his eyes bulge out a little bit going, that's bad. And I thought that was kind of remarkable in this too.
2: It's the only time I've ever seen pocket busted open. And it was like an accidental blood thing that I thought looked
1: really nice. Yeah. It was really remarkable. Cause it was like a headbutt on the outside and they're doing this, they do actually picture and picture in a way that I think was really smart like, they yeah, I, I
2: agree. I, it was the only time I've ever seen them do that, where they did picture-in-picture picture with the brawling on the floor and the action in the ring. I thought it looked really good.
1: Yeah, and, you know, the crowd got up for this, but imagine what this crowd would have been the next night if they did this show in Atlanta. You know, like, I went four stars on this, but this is a match that, in a different venue, and given more time and, you know, different circumstances, I could have easily gone much higher for this. I absolutely loved it.
2: Maybe it's just because I'm so high on the historical ramifications of the Ricochet and Pac feud, and this is just another chapter in it. Again, I thought sure. their interplay was was brilliant, really, because I, I hate the WWE, the TNA, the partners that hate each other, the bickering partners, the odd couple thing. Ricochet and Pac did it in a, in a way that I thought was really realistic. And then again, I Taylor in particular, I really think he brought the heat in this match. And Tozawa, Tozawa somehow is the fourth guy, and we just talked about a triple shot where he wrestles Sammy, and he wrestles Ares, and he wrestles Hulk in three really, really good to great matches. And Tozawa somehow the fourth guy here. Mike, I gave this match four and a half stars. I loved this match.
1: Oh, no, you, I totally get that. Like, that's not something where I feel like that we're off, and we're like, no. Like the four-way match where I think it's the worst match in history, and you are— a lot more charitable to it.
2: It does not even touch Moxley versus Homicide, but
1: continue, continue. Sorry to cut you off. I, I i mean, I think this is something that until something else happens that's worse, we're going to be divergent on that, and that's fine. But this is a match that, like, I'm just imagining what would happen if this match was in Philly or this yeah. match was in Chicago. Because then I'd be like four and a half. Is this thing four and three quarters? Like, these guys could have probably had like a 60 minute time limit draw here, and it would have been fascinating. And I felt like that'd be really great that. You know,
2: there were are, are two Pac matches in particular that I think he is a victim of being in the wrong building at the wrong time because there's this match, which again, I give it four and a half, but imagine if it was in that Philly market or that hot Chicago crowd or even BB Kings, I think would have reacted really positively positively to this. Sure. He's also got that PWG six man in 2012. It's him, Generico and Yoshino against Steen, Super Dragon and Tozawa. And that match happens, we'll talk about it, because it happens at the Wrestle Reunion weekend uh, with Dragon Gate USA Opened the Golden Gate 2012 the night before it. And that is a PWG show, and that is a brilliant match that, it, it, it's it, it's incredible, it's so good. But if that match happens in Reseda, mm-hmm. that is a five-star indie classic in a way that is on the level of a blood generation versus do fixer match, but it happens in front of the wrong crowd and it's in the wrong building and they get a good reaction, but they don't get the reaction they deserve. And it's just weird to think that Pac has two notable matches like that now. And I'm sure there's more in his catalog and I'm sure there are other wrestlers that have that as well, but Pac in particular has two where you just go, man, if that just would have happened somewhere else, that could have been really something special.
1: Well, we're running a little late, but I want to ask this because this, this has been all my mind, and this is a good time I rather do this. Should we reassess Pac as wrestler of the decade, of the last decade? Because I'm starting to think that this was in 2011. He was having some of the best matches we WWE when he did, came back to Dragon Gate, and completely changed the company. There's a case here that, like, we're, we're seeing these matches. He might have been the best wrestler of the last decade. It's probably him or Hiroshi Tanahashi, in my opinion. Oh, man, that is putting you on spot here.
2: Well, that that is tough just because he loses a year from October 2017 to he doesn't come. His first appearance is Dragon Gate, right? Yep, and, and when he November. returns, so he loses he loses a year, which is tough. and And I don't think. Like, to me, the wrestler of the decade was Okada, and it was just like slam dunk, like, who's second place? Like, I don't even want to have the conversation of who else could be the wrestler of the decade. So, I, I think we got to look at that tier, that second tier your Tanahashis and your Mochizukis, your Tomohiro Ishis, Chris Hero to an extent, but honestly. He lost more time. Yeah, Pac probably has a better decade than Hero does. Now, does Pac have a year? as singularly good as Heroes 2016? Well, if he does, it's his 2011, and I've been watching the Drangate Japan stuff that I can find as we go along in this timeline, and obviously we're watching the Drangate USA stuff. So if there's one year where he's just as good as Hero, it's going to be this year, and so far, so good. I mean, he's he's on the same level as a 2016 Hero Again, I talked about it on the Philly episode, I think historically, and myself included, I'm the one that champions this style, I'm the one that pimps these matches, and I think historically, we have done such a disservice to Pac for just how good he is on an elite level that just no one else is, and like I've said so many times now, when he's on the main roster in WWE... I think he's the best main roster worker there is. He was the one keeping me watching TV while I was still keeping up with that promotion. And then, you know, we've said enough good things about his Drangate run uh, afterwards, his RED run. And there's so much good 2010, 2011, 2012 with him in Drangate, his best at the super juniors run, his stuff in the Indies, when he's not working Drangate or Drangate USA. He at no, at, at worst, at worst, he is a top ten guy of the decade, and I don't think that's a popular opinion. That's certainly not the consensus. But also, I think if anybody knows, it is you and I because we have watched more pock than most people.
1: It, it's just something that like really occurred to me as we were talking just now about that. So that's why I wanted well, he's, to bring
2: I, again this run, this Gate USA run. It's the Canada shows, which he's in two really good matches in. And then he comes in and is on every Drangit USA show from here until he signs with WWE and you know, had a brilliant match in New York, had an incredible, incredible match in Philly. And then the New Jersey show, I, I don't put that on him. I think that's the circumstance of the venue where I think if he would have jumped off the top rope to his fullest capabilities, he would have gone through the ceiling. And I certainly don't want that to happen. But now I'm giving him four and a half again here. So I really do think you're onto something there. I don't think that's ridiculous at all.
1: I'm going to be real interested as we continue this and then concurrently reviewing this with DG, like how strong this run is that really starts in 2010 for him. Like it, it it's something that like watching this in this match in this match that only happens here, never happens again. And you like, you see this match and I know like this, imagine if they put this match in front of it. Like, like you mentioned the, uh, Russell union, six man, imagine if they put this match in Reseda, especially oh Tozawa in 2011 and Reseda having this match.
2: Yeah, no, it, it would be, it would be game changing. I mean, it would, it would be massive. It's, yeah, there's there there's so much good Pac stuff out there that I just I think as time has gone on we have really underappreciated his value and it's such a shame.
1: Listeners, let's reevaluate Pac. Let's give him the respect he deserves. L- l- Let us assess these things and look at what might have been at least in my opinion one of the top f- top four or five wrestlers of the decade. And you know I know case you say top ten and I think we should all come around to like what kind of talent Pac is. And you know if it wasn't for what's happening right now. I have every uh, belief that he would be having nonstop bangers in AEW right now.
2: So. He he would be having trios matches with oh, Pentagon God. and Ray Phoenix. Mike, we we are missing Death Triangle right now. Uh, he would be the wrestler of the year. Are you kidding me? Oh, 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 when I mean... he comes back, he has six man matches with the Lucha Brothers. Why can't America wear masks so we can get Pac back in the country? It's not that hard.
1: The only piece of AEW merchandise I thought about buying was a Death Triangle T-shirt. Like, do they make those? They do. Oh well, we might have to do some shopping. Yep. But the one thing that I teased earlier that I think is a cardinal sin, and yes. really colored my opinion on this show, and really kind of colors like the next year or so because I remember like this kind of sticking out to me. Ronan goes over four, or really over three, and Blood Warrior sweeps. This is after they lose in the United Gate Finals. I know we talked about this last week, Case, about what would have happened if they would have won. I think this is such a disservice to Ronan that it really is until Johnny Gargano wins the Freedom Gate Champion that those three guys in the company are really kind of treated at the level they could have been. And I think that this is a carnal sin of, a, of the promotion that you had three homemade stars and you couldn't have had them win this going into Atlanta with some momentum And I think that that's just one of those things that, I mean, we'll talk about it more over the next few weeks. Things don't get all better for them after this. Uh, Swan losing to Sammy, when
2: you frame it to me that way, Swan losing to Sammy is a mistake because you could have had Swan over Sammy, keep Shima versus Gargano. I don't have an issue with that. That that one, that one should
1: have happened the way it did.
2: And then, you know, again, it's kind of a wash because of the guys involved in the main event, but at least then you split it, you know, then it's not all bad. But like, so yeah, that's that's something that I hadn't that that
1: hadn't clicked with me. But now that you say it, you're completely right. Yeah, and I think that's a cardinal sin because imagine the trajectory of the promotion if they actually had because John Moxley's gone thin this weekend, but you would have your your big American face something they've been craving since the first show. You could have set them up over the last few months and did to something better, and I think that's something that. This is going to be something for me going on that I'm going to keep track of is how Ronin's presented because something changed somewhere between 2010 and 2011 on how Ronin go- was supposed to be and how Ronin is. Some of that was the face heel switch with Blood Warriors, but leaving them at 0-3, an completely getting wiped out in this, leading into a weekend that as we go through these shows, things don't, they, it's just, I think that Gabe supposedly completely made the wrong decision here and I think it's indefensible considering what he was trying to do with this promotion from the jump and I think that's a cardinal sense
2: Mike I I think that's fair uh I you know it's something that we will continue to evaluate as the weekend goes on as the next time you hear from us it will not be open the ultimate gate in 2011 Mercury Rising is the show that comes first on the Wrestlemania or I guess second this time on the Wrestlemania weekend docket we We'll hopefully have a special guest on this show uh, if, if things stay the way they are now. And the card for this show was Eric Cannon versus John Moxley. A six-way elimination match with Jimmy Jacobs, Silas Young, John Davis, Brody Lee, A.R. Fox, and stalker Ichikawa. Masato Yoshino versus Sammy Callahan. An open-the-brave-gate title match between Pac and Akira Tozawa. Uh, some local talent in a tag match. The open-the-freedom-gate title between Yamato and Austin Aries. And the six-man spectacular Dragon Gate tradition WrestleMania weekend: Ronin, Johnny Gargano, Chuck Taylor, and Rich Swan against Blood Warriors Shima, Naruki Doi, and Ricochet. Mike, I am very much looking forward to watching this show again.
1: Yeah, I I know I've rewatched the Brave Gate recently, but this entire show is an interesting one, and you know we'll, we'll be able to kind of track how the company is coming out of Atlanta. I mean, as we saw last year with WrestleMania for 2010, it became like one of those formative weekends that kind of sent the company in a different direction for the rest of the year. And I'm excited to see how things change coming out of WrestleMania season in Atlanta for 2011. Yeah, it should be fun. Yep. So that's going to do it for this edition of open the VoiceGate rewind and rewatch. Thank you all for listening again. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are at open voice gate. Leave a review for us on the iTunes podcast application. If you have the chance and if you wish to donate, please go to redcircle.com. There's a bright red button in the middle of it where you can give a donation. It can either be one-time or reoccurring, and any donations are certainly appreciated. Case, anything you wanted to hit on before we get out of here? Nope, you nailed it. Alright, so you can find Case on Twitter, at underscore in your case. You can find me on Twitter, at Fujiheya. And that's going to do it for this edition of Rewind and Rewatch, and we'll be back with you next week for WrestleMania weekend 2011. Take care.